The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. The rest of us, we will be in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. If you haven't been with us, or maybe this is your first time, or maybe you're visiting for the second or third time, haven't been here in a while. We're going through the Gospel of Luke, one of the four Gospels that give the account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Luke's account. We're going through the whole book, about a paragraph at a time. We're now in chapter 8. And I'm going to be reading from verses 22 to 25. And all of chapter 8 is the same day. It's been a long day of Jesus doing ministry. Healing the sick casting out demons, teaching, predominantly teaching through parables, and then explaining the meaning to that privately in later session with his disciples. More teaching, more healing, more miracles. Probably started very early, nonstop, all day long. He is the God-man, but he's 100% man, so he's probably completely exhausted. And all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that on this day, the, the crowds were massive. They were just huge. As he, he's a, a year and a half into his ministry and amassing a following from the far regions of northern Israel all the way down to the south. Here he is in Galilee teaching. That's his hub. His home base is Capernaum, the city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus grew up in Galilee. That's where his base of operations is. The temple's down there in the south in Judah. So predominantly the last year and a half, Jesus has been in the northern part in Galilee, his home region. Miracle after miracle, profound, unique, unprecedented teaching no one has ever heard the likes of before, and hence the massive crowds that just continue to accumulate and follow him wherever he goes, pressing in on him. One of the Gospels says, pressing in so much that People's lives were in jeopardy. That's how huge, tight, and pressing these crowds are that are following him. And that was true on this day. Uh, the, crowds, the crowd was so massive and huge, and he was so penned in that he had to, in order to get some room and space, he got in a boat on the lake and kind of pushed himself back so he could see the massive crowd, tens of thousands of people probably, doing that all day. I preach one 50-minute sermon, and... I go home an hour and a half later, and I'm, I'm ready to zonk for two hours. Now, teaching uh, will wear you out. If you're a teacher, you know that. You expend a lot of energy. Imagine Jesus doing these 10 to 12-hour days of just constant teaching, giving of himself. So that's I, I, I needed to lay that background. Very important because it plays into the story here. It's not just a story, true history. So he's been teaching all day. The last thing that we saw was he was teaching specifically on the parable of the four soils, and we, we went through that. And immediately after that, the end of the day, it's dark, it's evening now. I believe, according to one of the other Gospels, that he's already had dinner with some select disciples, and it's time to end the day as he's thinking already about tomorrow and the ministry before him. So it's evening time, sun's going down, 
verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. Now on one of those days, actually it was that day according to Mark, on the very same day, later in the day in the evening, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. So they're on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And let's go to the other side. By the other side, he meant about six miles away, going east on the eastern side of the lake. We know that from verse 26. Jesus, is, he's in charge. He's taking the lead here. He's telling the disciples what they're doing, where they're going. They're following. He's leading. He's the master. So they launched out on the boat, 23, but as they were sailing along on the Sea of Galilee, a very large lake, Jesus fell asleep. He was exhausted, already laid that out. He's the God man. We know that in John 4. He got tired. He was hungry. 100% God, 100% man. He needed sleep. It's not easy to sleep on a little boat on a lake or sea like the Sea of Galilee. It's prone to, because it's kind of small and it's low, it's prone to being blown very easily by winds that come down from Mount Hermon, 40 miles north. Fell asleep. That's astounding. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended or came down on the lake and they began to be swamped. Their boat began to be swamped. And to be in danger, uh, water was just flooding in to their sailboat to the point that it was going to sink. They could drown. Verse 24, Jesus is sleeping. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, or more like, Master, Master, we're perishing, literally. They thought they were going to die. And Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind. And the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to his disciples there on the boat, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Many of you, no doubt, have heard this story before, this miracle. It's in three of the Gospels. It's a popular miracle, well-known, especially if you've grown up in the church or Sunday school. It's a simple miracle, very easy to understand and read, very easy to explain. Not a whole lot of practical application wrapped up there on the surface, but there's definitely application for us. Let me read it again, this time incorporating what Mark and Matthew contribute to the story. Gives us a little more detail. It's like uh, this miracle in stereo, if you will. Keep in mind that Matthew wrote first, probably around 50, so he had this story already. And then Mark wrote next. He got his info primarily from Peter, maybe 55, between 55 and 60. And then at that time, around 60, Luke is writing his gospel. Remember, Luke was not an apostle. And he's doing a lot of legwork and traveling all over the place, interviewing people, talking to people uh, about putting his gospel story together. 
and no doubt he probably got, maybe Matthew was alive and he was able to talk to Matthew. Matthew, tell me about that story. I, I heard about it in your gospel. Is it incredible? Give me more. And went, maybe he went and talked to Mark. And then the Spirit of God led Luke to write his rendition. And so uh, Luke adds some interesting details, but so do Mark and Matthew. So here's the story altogether. Now on one of those days, or actually on that very day where he was just teaching all day long, doing miracles, teaching in parables, on that very day, when evening came, when the sun was gone down, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, the massive crowds, so it's deliberate, looking around, and they're pinning in on him, and there were many times where he's trying to get away from the crowd. And it was a challenge. He gave orders to the disciples to depart to the other side of the sea. So he was taking deliberate action. We need to get out of here. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Jesus and his disciples got in the boat, and he said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake, uh, the land of the Gadarenes, for a divine appointment coming up shortly. And after dismissing the crowd, they took Jesus along with them into the boat, dismissing the crowd. Bodyguards, basically, is how they were acting. Okay, no, get him away. Leave the master alone. He needs time. He needs to get away. We've got plans. No, we can't fit everybody in the boat. I'm sorry. We'll be back maybe tomorrow or next week. That's what was going on. Dismissing the crowd. That's what that means. And they took Jesus along with them in the boat just as he was. And get this, other boats were with him. So uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. There were boats on the lake all the time. There was a major fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, Peter, Andrew, James, John were fishermen. That's how they grew up. It was a family business, and the main place that they would fish would be the Sea of Galilee. Their dad, no doubt, owned fishing, a fishing boat or fishing boats. This could be one of those boats. It was a fishing boat. Uh, so they're on the boat, and they had to launch out, and they did. And then, But as they were sailing along, see, this is not a little rowboat. Sailing along, and it's a very specific verb. This is a pretty sizable fishing sailboat probably enough to accommodate maybe up to 20 grown men plus the fish you got to catch but as they were sailing along he fell asleep by the way it says the disciples we don't know which disciples in verse uh, 22 Jesus and his disciples if you're thinking 12 apostles don't think 12 apostles because that's a different word disciples could have just been maybe the inner circle could have been just Peter James John we don't know who could have been some disciples who weren't apostles that we don't even know about. They are unnamed. It could include some of the apostles. We just don't know. Uh, but as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep in the stern, and he was asleep on a cushion. He had a pillow, whatever that was. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and behold, a violent storm developed on the sea so that the boat was being covered by the waves, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling with water, and they began to be swamped, and they were in danger. Jesus is sleeping through this whole thing. They came up to Jesus, and they woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So Jesus got up, and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. And he said to the sea, hush, be still. And instantaneously the wind died down. And the winds stopped. And the waves stopped. And it became perfectly 
calm instantaneously. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, everything is calm. And he says, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. It's a rebuke. They don't even have a chance to celebrate. Why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Do you still have no faith? Where is your faith? He's pretty emphatic. But the disciples were very fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this? Can you imagine Peter in the inner circle? After all that they have seen, they have been with Jesus. I believe Jesus just came from Peter's home where possibly he had just healed his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. And maybe it was there that they had dinner. Maybe it was there at Peter's mother's house where they had dinner, and that's where he gave them the insider information on the parables and their meanings. He's been spending 24-7 with Peter and some of the other disciples, and yet still... And they've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And they see this miracle and they are still stunned and startled. Maybe because they've seen something they had never seen before. If you recount the miracles that have happened so far, this one is unique. Who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. So the sermon today, appropriately, if you have it, your uh, hand out there, and just put the title up there, uh, Jesus, Lord over nature. Jesus, Lord over nature. And that's why this miracle stands out. We've seen some miracles happen so far. We've detailed those, uh, highlighted some, explained some. Leprosy has been healed. In the last chapter, Luke chapter 7, remember when John the, uh, uh, John the Baptist was in prison, isolated maybe for months all by himself, and began to have cloudy thinking and a frail, sinful human being as we all are, and was maybe beginning to lose faith that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he sent his messengers, and is Jesus the one or should we look for another? And the only response Jesus had was to John the Baptist's disciples, go back and tell John this, and he quoted from the Old Testament that the Messiah does miracles. You go tell John this. Here's what I'm doing. Here's how I preoccupy my time. I preach the gospel to the poor. Go and report to John. But also, the blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead even are raised. What other evidence do you need, John? And Jesus is just reminding John the Baptist, these are the credentials of the Messiah. The Messiah will authenticate his ministry by doing these amazing miracles. But that list of miracles didn't include this kind of miracle. That's why this miracle stands out. It's, it's unique. So I just want to highlight that real quick, the, the distinct unique nature of this particular miracle of Jesus. If you study the Gospels you'll, and you just tallied up all the different miracles that are recorded in the four Gospels, you will come up with about 37 miracles, even though Jesus did countless miracles. He did so many miracles, it couldn't be tabulated or calculated or written down in any human book. There are just too many, said John at the end of his Gospel. Can't write them all down. So that's why John chose 
seven miracles out of the gazillion miracles that Jesus did over the course of three and a half years. He chose seven. He was very selective. As a matter of fact, most of his miracles probably were miracles not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He was giving unique ones in the 90s that the Christian world maybe wasn't familiar with that Jesus did. He chooses these seven miracles. He writes them down in his gospel. So, John, so 37 miracles that are listed, recorded in the four gospels, even though we know he did way more than that, 37 distinct kinds of miracles. John lists eight total miracles. Mark lists 19 of these 37 miracles. Matthew lists 21 of these miracles. And then Luke lists 22 of these miracles. So Luke lists more of the miracles of Jesus than any of the other three gospels. And remember, what is Luke doing? One of the things he's doing is he's trying to lay out evidence and make a case to his friend Theophilus that he might prove that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the judge of every soul. And he is using evidence, inspired evidence, to make his case. Inspired evidence of Scripture that God has given and revealed. Can we use evidence when we witness to unbelievers? Absolutely. You can use all the evidence in the Bible you have at your disposal to your heart's content. And God will use that through his spirit to work on the heart of that unbeliever. You can go ahead and try to get a rock over from some archaeologist that's not inspired and say, here's a rock and it says Pontius Pilate on it. That's not as powerful as the word of God and the miracles and the evidence there. Because God's promised to use scripture, the word of God, the living word of God, to work on the heart, the mind, the soul, the conscience of an unbeliever. And that is exactly what Luke is doing. He's amassing this divine, supernatural revelation of evidence to verify who the Christ is. He is Jesus. And he puts these 22 miracles on display for Theophilus and the rest of the world. Miracles aren't just for unbelievers. I read the miracles. I'm encouraged, aren't you? I read the miracles of Jesus. Say, oh, man, that is my Savior. That's my Lord. He can handle anything. He can do anything. It's one of the purposes of miracles. So you take those 37 miracles, and you see that Luke amassed all kinds of miracles, and then they actually go into different categories. Here are the categories or the areas by which Jesus performed miracles. And the idea is you put them all together. Those 37 miracles can be put into eight different categories, and they cover every area of life, every dimension of life, and in the end, he proves Jesus is Lord of all. Every area of life, every facet of life, every dimension of life. That's the point of the miracles. Here are eight categories of Jesus' miracles, most of which we've already seen. He does healing miracles of the sick and the lame. Number two, he does restorative miracles. He restores the senses of those to see the dumb and the deaf. Number three, he does exorcism. That's over the demonic, invisible, spiritual world. Number four, he raises the dead. Top that. You can't. Faith healers today, they're not doing this. Otherwise, they'd go to the mortuary and start raising people, and they're not. Jesus is unique. Jesus is real. Uh, miracle category number five, he had miracles of escape. Crowd would be pressing in on him. They want to kill him, and all of a sudden, they try to grab him. Poof, he disappeared. He did that more than once. Category number six of miracles Jesus did, he did creation miracles. He would create food. He created fish. He created love for thousands and thousands of people. He created wine out of nothing, really turned water into wine instantaneously. That's a creation miracle. Category number seven, Jesus did miracles, get this, of destruction. 
The environmentalists won't like this because what did he do? He destroyed a fig tree. A poor little innocent fig tree. Didn't do anything to anybody. What did Jesus do? Zap. Curse. And it was dead. Wow, he's picking on trees. He was not a tree lover. He, killed, he cursed the fig tree. And he had the sovereign right to do so. He is Lord. He created the first fig tree. That was category number seven. Miracles of destruction. And that's been true of God all throughout history. God does miracles, all of this kind. Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, that's Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. And God did plenty of all these kinds of miracles all throughout history. And God also did miracles of destruction. Just the flood. That was the biggest miracle of destruction history has ever known. Wiped out everybody on planet Earth, saved eight people. And it was universal in its scope. And its devastation lasted for over a year. Then you, God raised up Moses, and he did ten plagues. They, they were ten plagues of destruction. The first one was he turned, God said, the Lord, it says, read the text in Exodus. God told Moses, I will strike the Nile River. The Lord said, I will strike the Nile River, and every living thing in the Nile will die. And it did. So God cursed nature. That was a destructive miracle. And many of those ten plagues were destructive. God told Moses, I'm going to do another plague. I'm going to bring hail out of the sky. I'm going to bring massive hailstones. They probably weighed dozens and dozens of pounds because God said when they come, it'll be the most devastating hailstone storm that Egypt has ever known. It's going to destroy uh, just about every living thing in Egypt. It's going to destroy all the plants categorically, and it will literally shatter the trees. That's how huge these were. That's a destructive miracle. So you can read those in the book of Exodus. So this is in keeping with God. And the last category, uh, number eight, of miracles that Jesus did were uh, miracles over nature. And that's what this is. That's why this is unique. Miracles over nature. Jesus walked on water. That's a miracle over nature, right? And several others over nature. This one is he calms the storm. He calms this hurricane-like wind coming down that is literally going to take people's lives. And how does he stop it? With a word, just with a calm word, instantaneously. Jesus is Lord over nature. And this kind of miracle had to happen. This would have to be one of his credentials to prove that he's the Messiah because the Old Testament was very specific. We could read literally dozens and dozens of verses, particularly from the prophets, like Isaiah, long book, 66 chapters, and there's just chapter after chapter of the coming Messiah, and that one thing that the Messiah, the coming Messiah is going to do is he's going to do all kinds of miracles. Jesus quoted to John the Baptist, here's miracles that the Messiah is going to do. One of the miracles Jesus didn't allude to in that passage on John the Baptist were miracles of nature. The coming Messiah must have the ability to do miracles over nature. It was a prerequisite. It was absolutely required. Why? Because nature needs to be reigned in. Nature is subject to the curse that God put on the earth at the very beginning. Nature is out of kilter. Nature is defective. It wasn't always that way. It wasn't created that way. But God cursed the earth when Adam sinned. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, God turned to Adam after he sinned. And he said, because of the sin that you have committed, 
I will curse the ground because of you. Literally, I will curse the earth because of you and everything about earth. And then you flip over to Genesis chapter 5 at the end of the chapter. It says the same thing. God cursed the earth. That means everything about the earth. The atmosphere of the earth, the sky of the earth, the space of the earth, the earth itself, the planet earth, all that live on the planet, all the plants, all of life, the weather surrounding the earth, it is all cursed. Then you read Romans 8. Talks about the curse, the Apostle Paul. He's reminding Christians, hey Christians, we li- I know you're, uh, you received the gospel, you got your sins saved, that's awesome, uh, but we ain't arrived yet, we're not done yet, full redemption hasn't happened yet. God's saving act, Jesus Christ, he's not just the savior of individual souls, he's the cosmic savior, he's the savior of the world, he's the savior of creation, he's the savior of the planets. I remember a politician uh, maybe 8, 12 years ago literally said, if you vote for me, I will save planet earth. That's a quote. I wrote it down. I was in disbelief. Did he just say that? If you vote for me as president, I will save the earth. No, you won't. That's actually the epitome of blasphemy. That's arrogance, but that's the epitome of blasphemy, putting yourself in the place of God. That is dangerous. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did where God punished him. You can go to your devotions this week and read Job 38 through 42, And you know what that is? That's just one long 89-question interrogation from Yahweh, God, creator of the universe, pointing his finger at Job and interrogating him with question after question after question after, basically saying, who do you think you are? This is after God has already said that Job was a righteous man, a godly man, a humble man, a perfect man in the Hebrew text, meaning just perfectly acceptable to God. And yet he's warning him and he's giving him a lecture. And what was the nature of the lecture is, who are you, Job, to try to figure everything out and tell me who I am? You're not God. Your friends aren't God. I am God. I am the Almighty. Let me ask you 89 questions and you give me an answer. As a matter of fact, I won't let you answer because they're all rhetorical and the answer to all of them is no. (laughs) Were you there in the beginning of creation? No. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? No. Were you there when I put the skies in the... In the atmosphere, no. And he just goes on, and he actually does it kind of in order. He does creation, he does the atmosphere, he does the animals in creation at the end, he does providence at the end and being provided, and just before that, he does nature. Were you there when I created the heavens? Were you there when I created the clouds? Were you there when I assigned the circuits of the wind that will be used in my time? Were you there when I placed the hail in its place to be used in times of devastation? Were you there? No. This is a Christian worldview. We need to have a biblically informed Christian worldview even of nature, of the most basic fundamental questions of life, of who's in charge of the weather, what affects the weather, why is the weather bad, why does it seem to keep getting bad, how do we control the weather, we don't. We don't even know if we affect the weather, and I would say we don't. God has made it clear he's in charge of the weather, he is the weatherman. You told that to Job. So listen with discerning ears. You hear somebody on television that we're controlling the weather. It's a lie. It's unbiblical. It's pagan. That's a pagan worldview. And we shouldn't tolerate it. It undermines God and his glory. He's not put in his rightful place as the sovereign creator. And that's true here. That's, that plays into understanding this miracle that Jesus did. Why is there... 
bad weather that can kill people on the Sea of Galilee anyway. Today, they, they would blame it literally on global warming. And I'm not kidding. We had an earthquake that was devastating, 7.2 in Haiti, killed hundreds and hundreds of people, 1,000, 2,200 people. And it didn't take less than 24 hours before the news, oh, global warming caused this earthquake. I'm not kidding. Then the hurricane down in Louisiana killed people in five different states. Yeah, there you go, global warming. You did it because you drive a Subaru. It's your fault. No. Earthquakes have been happening since Genesis chapter 3. God warned us that was the case. Paul reminded us in Genesis chapter 8 2,000 years ago. Jesus said the weather is literally going to get worse and worse as time goes on because of the degeneration that's happening because of the curse in Matthew 24. Made it clear. We're not in charge of the weather. God is. So why was there this life-threatening mini-hurricane on the Sea of Galilee? Because of the curse. That's why. Mommy, Daddy, why do bad things happen? Why, do, why was there a hurricane in Louisiana? Well, Christian people with a biblical worldview have an answer. Some people call, oh, that's simplistic. Oh, that's a religious platitude. No, it's the truth. And it's actually the only answer the Bible gives. It's supposed, every time something bad happens with the weather, an earthquake, which we can't control. By the way, there's 55 earthquakes that happen every day around the world. We can't control earthquakes. It's a reminder of who is in charge and who's not. It's a reminder of sin. You hear about an earthquake, you hear about a pandemic, you hear about a tornado, you hear about a hurricane, you hear about a fire. We should be, immediately be reminded that this earth is under a curse from a holy, sovereign God. And it is temporary. He is in charge. Nothing surprises him. Nothing happens without his permission. He's sovereignly in control. That's what we should think of when we hear about these natural disasters. So there is practical relevance from this miracle here. So we know that bad things happen in the weather and with nature because of the curse that God put on the earth as a result of Adam's sin. We're all subject to it. it will, the curse will not be lifted until Jesus comes again. And so the Bible does promise that when Jesus returns the second time, he, one of the things that he will do, one of the glorious things that he will do after wiping out and destroying and smashing his enemies like grapes, he will take over reign of the earth. And part of what he's going to do, he's going to remove the curse. He's going to remove a huge part of the curse. And part of that curse that will be removed, it will be removed from the earth. Deserts that go miles and miles and miles with nothing will be replenished. Like the rose. Like the rose of Sharon. That's what Jesus is going to do. So the Bible answers all these questions. So why was this uh, natural disaster an imminent threat because of the curse in which they lived. And then the other great reminder is that Jesus has power over nature itself. It's incredible. Over the winds? Over a hurricane? Over the rain? Instantaneous? That's sovereign control. Just with a word, he made it stop. He didn't always do this. This was his sovereign discretion. There were probably plenty of storms that he just allowed to continue. His sovereign discretion. So with that background, let's go to, back to the text, circle back around, and we'll just pick out some highlights here of this stunning story of the Lord Jesus Christ in 
glory, having control over nature, which is encouraging to the Christian if you believe this story is historical. If you believe that you know Jesus Christ personally, he's your Savior and your Lord, he's still the same Lord. He's still, the only difference is he's in heaven, but he still reigns from on high through his power, doesn't he? He's still, he's still the same Savior. He's still the same Lord who loves his people. He's still the sovereign one, but he's operating at a distance, true. We walk by faith, not by sight, but still we can rest in his authority. We can rest in his control. We can rest in the fact that he knows us. He loves us. He's adopted us into his family. He cares about us. He cares about us and our health more than we do. So this can alleviate a lot of fear if we would just walk by faith and not by sight. So Jesus has power over nature. Just want to ingrain that in your brain. Because we're still in the middle of a natural pandemic epidemic, right? COVID. It is still threatening people's lives. It is still scaring people to the death. People the world over are just crazed out of their mind, out of the threat of the implications of COVID. They've gone beyond reasonable. They hit the panic mode a long time ago, and now they're just completely disoriented in their thinking. Without com- That is fear. They are driven by fear. That shouldn't be the case of a Christian who has a biblical Christian worldview. I don't care what the pandemic, I don't care what the imminent threat is. So what the disciples did here, they get rebuked, but they did do some right things. So we want to learn from what they did right. And we can appropriate those lessons and put them into our life right. Now incorporate them into our thinking if currently we don't have biblical thinking on these issues, a Christian worldview, biblical worldview. Let's look at it, 22 to 25, just three points formally to walk us through the story. Point number one is the setting. I've already given you some of the background. The setting, verse 22, and then there's 23 to 24. That's the sovereignty. Jesus' sovereign control on display. And then 25 is the summary. That's kind of the point or the lesson. So the setting, the sovereignty, and the summary. Let's look at verse 22. The setting, it's late at night. Jesus is exhausted. He's tired. He needs to get away from the pressing crowds. They're following. Here he is trying to get away on the Sea of Galilee, and here there are other boats following along, trying to chase after him. He just can't get away from the crowds. And in that evening, now on one of the days, uh, Jesus and his disciples, the apostles, we don't know which ones, uh, there weren't all apostles necessarily, so this, just followers of Jesus, however many he wanted to go along with him. They got into the boat. Like I said, it was a big enough boat to accommodate many men, maybe a couple dozen, had a sail or two. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. And why did he say that? Jesus knew what he was doing. You know, Jesus, in, think about it, in three and, a half, yeah, three and a half years of his ministry, Jesus never wasted any time. He was the perfect steward of his time. That doesn't mean he didn't take breaks to rest or relax or just chat over dinner or maybe even have a good time doing something. But he was perfect with his time. And it was always day-to-day, moment-by-moment, praying to the Father and trusting the Father. Jesus didn't need to know what was going to happen two days from now. Jesus did not need to be 
omniscient to fulfill the Father's will. It was obeying and submitting to the Father in any given moment of time, continually and forevermore. Obeying the Father, following the Father's lead. Maybe all he knew at this point was, okay, guys, we got to get in the boat because tomorrow we're supposed to go over to the land of Gadara. Maybe he didn't know anything more than that. Maybe he didn't know that he was going to meet a demoniac that he was going to be confronted with and have to do a miracle. We don't know. We don't know, and it doesn't matter because Jesus already said how he operated. He operated 100% of the time in obedience to the will of the Father in any given moment with every single decision. And that's what's going on here. So he's taking control deliberately. Here's the, he had the exact number of disciples that he wanted in the exact boat. Could have been one of uh, his apostles' boats that they never got rid of, even when they followed Jesus. Maybe it was dad's boat. But there it was for his use. They get in, they launch out, and they start heading. And it's a six-mile trek. It's dark. I don't know how they see. Maybe it's because of the moon at night and the stars, because that's why God gave them. So they know what they're going. They're professional Fishermen, they know how to operate on that lake or sea. And they're headed over. And God the Father has a, a plan for Jesus when he arrives in the land of Gadara on the next day. But something happens spontaneously. That's also one of the unique things about this miracle is it's kind of a spontaneous miracle. Most of Jesus' miracles were not spontaneous. They just didn't happen kind of on the fly. They were deliberate. Uh, the sisters of Lazarus... They send message for Jesus. Jesus, Lazarus is about to die. It takes him four days to get there. He's very deliberate. He's focused. I'm going to see Lazarus, who is dying, who is dead. Deliberate plan. Those are how most of his miracles were. Mary, she ran out of wine at the wedding. Jesus, can you make more wine? Deliberate, plan, specific. This was not. This was on the fly. This was spontaneous. For the apostles and disciples, uh, it was totally unexpected. So that's the setting. Let's look at the sovereignty. That's the heart of this miracle, verse 23 and 24. But as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep. He's on one end of the boat, sizable fishing boat. We know because it says they got up and they went to him. So maybe they're at the other end of the boat. Uh, the apostles, or I mean the disciples, they were not sleeping. They were scared to death. The winds kick up. We don't know how long Jesus was out, completely out. This word, by the way, fell asleep in verse 24. It's, that's the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it's a very specific word. It's an emphatic word. He was deep in sleep. He was zonked. This, this vicious storm was not even going to wake him up. He was sleeping soundly right through it. That's why they had to go and wake him up, shake him. Maybe even that's why they asked the question more than once. And why they were questioning, don't you care that we're perishing? That's how deep in sleep he is. That's the peace that Jesus has. He's the God-man. He's just totally at rest with the Father, sleeping away. The ship's going down. They're all going to drown. He's in the Father's hands. He doesn't panic. He doesn't fret. He's not anxious. He doesn't worry. He's trusting his Father's, father's sovereignty. And as a result, his disciples should rest in his sovereignty. And as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended. It literally came down, and literally it did, because... By the way, one of the things that Job tells us, as God is the creator, established natural order in the first week of creation. God established, he created laws that we call natural laws, like gravity. Where did gravity come from? It didn't evolve. How does gravity evolve from a microbe or an animal cell? Where in the world did the law of gravity come from? Well, God established it. Scripture is clear. 
That's what the book of Colossians tells us, that the word of God sustains everything in life. All the laws, all the molecules, all their orbits, all those invisible things is sustained by the word of his power. Didn't involve or didn't evolve. God created it instantaneously in week one. And he created all these, he created everything and then he sustained them and the, the laws that sustain them and the law of gravity is one of those sustaining, consistent laws that keeps order literally in our physical world, including us. And the book of Job tells us that God put order and laws up in the sky, in the atmosphere, in the stratosphere. He created circuits for the wind. Did you know they run on circuits? It's logical. It's scientific. It is repetitive. It is predictable. You can count on it. It's self-perpetuating. These circuits, these wind circuits that can predicted, be predicted even today with our little tinker toys that we have with science. Wow, there seems to be a repetitive, consistent circuit. The book of Job says God put it there. God sustains it there. God's the operator of it. That's where the power comes from. That's what Einstein could never figure out. Where does this invisible, sustaining, ongoing, consistent power come from? He was an atheist. He was a frustrated atheist. So these circuits of the wind were being sustained by God, and they were coming down. There's one that comes down from, if you go north of the Sea of Galilee, and I've done that, and you go up to the highest mountain in Israel, 9,000 feet high, on the furthest northern boundary of the land of Israel is Mount Hermon. And literally year-round, it is capped with snow. You can see it when you go there to Israel. And so that a lot of that water is melting continually. It's coming down. It forms the upper side of the Jordan River, comes down and feeds into the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a big lake. And then there's an outlet, the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, that goes down the Jordan River again, down to the Dead Sea. But there are ongoing, regular, continual winds coming, functioning on a wind circuit from Mount Hermon, which is, the elevation is 9,000 feet high, and the winds go down to about 600 feet below sea level, down to where the Sea of Galilee is. So it's just a natural circuit, a natural course, and that's where the storms come from. And so that was the wind it's talking about that came down, a fierce, massive, deadly wind gale descended and came down and just smashed into uh, the Sea of Galilee. And as a result, they began to be swamped and water was pouring into their boat and the, that boat was going down. They were in danger. They were going to die if Jesus didn't intervene and do something. Verse 24, so they came to Jesus and they woke him up. So maybe they were screaming at Jesus first, Jesus, and they look over, he's not awake. Oh, somebody go wake him up. Somebody's shaking him. Man, what's going on? So they all got to go wake him up. And then they repeatedly say, Jesus, Master, Savior, Lord. They call him four different names. Save us, save us. Don't you want to save us? You're going to let us die here? They kept repeating themselves. They are kind of questioning his care and sovereignty and control. Hence, the rebuke that he came up with. Are you just going to leave us here to die? Don't you care, Jesus? Be careful when you're praying to Jesus and you say that to him. He might come back and say, where's your faith? Where's your faith? But we're all prone to ask those kind of questions. Where are you, God? What are you doing, God? Why aren't you helping me, God? Where's your faith? So they're shaking him. Master, master, that's emphatic. Master, master, we are perishing. We are dying. We're in the process of dying. We are going down. We are drowning. And he got up totally in control, like I said, totally calm, and just with a word, 
the same way that God created the universe. That's Genesis chapter 1. How did God create everything? The book of Hebrews says he created it with a word, instantaneously one word. Let there be light, there was light. And that's how Jesus did this miracle, just with a word. He is the powerful, sovereign Yahweh and creator of the universe, just as God the Father is. And just with a word, he rebuked the wind. The wind needed to be rebuked because the wind in this case is an enemy. It's deadly. It's a killer. That's the result of the curse. The weather is not always our friend. Many times, the weather in the earth itself is our enemy. God's intention in the very beginning, the ideal, was that he gave all of planet earth to Adam and Eve before the curse, before sin. It's all yours. Enjoy. Flourish. No threats. Nothing to harm you. Just obey. The earth is yours. Those plants are yours. Those trees are yours. There were no weeds. There was no wind. There were no threats. The earth was Adam's friend. Then there was the curse. And God cursed the earth, and now the earth became Adam's enemy. And God's mandate didn't change. You know what? You still need to fill the earth, replenish the earth, take control of the earth, rule over the earth, get your sustenance from the earth. But by the way, it's your enemy now. Good luck. Not good luck. But God would said it's going to be a challenge. By the sweat of your brow, now you're going to eke out an existence. And it will be painful, and it will be hard. And that is man's lot. The earth, in many ways, it's a beautiful thing, a creation, a gift from God. And at the same time, because it is cursed, many times it is our enemy. Fires are raging through California. It's an enemy. It's, it's destroying. I talked to a pastor this week. His house, he lost a house in a fire completely up in Santa Rosa, California. So that's a result of the curse. God isn't being fickle up there like Zeus had a bad day. We have the answer. We know why these things happen. We know the answer, too. There isn't going to be a solution to these kind of things in this lifetime while we're on this cursed earth. This helps us long for heaven, doesn't it? This life is but a breath. It's a vapor. It goes by quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the heart's cry of every true Christian. And it's going to be glorious. When you die right now, before Jesus returns, you go immediately into God's presence where there's perfect peace. But in the future, you're still awaiting the resurrection of your physical body, and we are all still awaiting when Jesus comes to make things right on planet Earth and remove the curse from the Earth, and we will rule with him in glory. That's what we look forward to. The disciples should have known this because they had their Old Testament. They grew up in synagogue. They knew why bad things happened. They knew the power of Yahweh. They knew the claims of Jesus. They supposedly thought he was the Messiah. They knew what the Messiah could do. They saw it with their own eyes. Yet it's still hard. They're still doubting. But he gets up and rebukes the wind. It had to be rebuked, like I said, in the surging waves. And instantaneously they stopped. They obeyed. They listened. And it became perfectly calm. So that's God's sovereignty through the Son of God, Jesus the Lord. Finally, the summary. What's the point? Verse 25, and he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? What does that mean? Where does faith come from? Says, he's being very specific. Where is your faith? Faith comes from hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Jesus could say that to his disciples because that's what he has been teaching the entire time. A year and a half now, he's been doing nothing but teaching the word of God. Some translations on Romans 10, 17 say the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. What have they been listening to? For a year and a half, and if they're close disciples, 24-7, everywhere they go. 
It's the constant Word of God, divine revelation, filling their soul, filling their mind. And he just got finished saying, you know what? You need to hear it. You need to hear it. You need to believe it. You need to understand it. You need to act on it. You need to obey it. You need to submit to it. You need to assimilate it into your very life, into your very conscience. That's what he meant. That's where faith comes from. If you lack faith, that means you lack either exposure to the Bible, the Word of God, or maybe you're getting exposure and you're not listening very carefully, or you're not meditating on it, or maybe you're not understanding it properly. That's also possible if you lack faith. Or the worst scenario, you heard it, you were exposed, you understood it, you know what it says, and you choose not to obey. You won't have faith. But if you want to live the Christian life, Corinthians is clear. We walk by faith, not by sight. That means something specific. What does that mean? We walk by the truth of the Bible, not by anything else. That's what the verse means. We live life day to day, decision to decision, based on what the Bible says. That is walking by faith, not by sight. Not what the world is telling us. Not what human wisdom tells us. Not what empiricism tells us, walk by faith, not by sight. In accordance with the word of God, as we're exposed to it, we submit to it, we trust it, we trust Jesus. We have to trust him all the more because we don't see him, said Peter. You know, my best friend I've never met personally, and if you're a Christian, the same is true of you. If you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, your best friend is Jesus Christ. You know him, he's your savior, he's your brethren, he is your world, and you've never met him personally, physically. He is in heaven, and everything about our relationship with him is at a distance. It is all through faith. There is the reality of the Holy Spirit literally living in us, but that's just a, an amazing concept to think about. Who's your best friend? Jesus. Can I meet him? Well, physically, personally, no. Physically, no. Personally, yes, through the Holy Spirit, and it's true. He does exist. He reigns. And he's just a prayer away. Actually, he's in my heart through the Holy Spirit. So verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? You're not acting on your faith. You're not acting on all this teaching that I'm giving you. Come on now. And this was a common rebuke he would give his disciples and even his apostles for that three and a half years. It wouldn't finally click until Acts chapter 2. Um, they were fearful and amazed. Now, this is kind of interesting because they were originally fearful from the storm, right? They're going to die. Now they have a different fear. They are afraid of Jesus. And they're fearing him more than the storm that was about to kill them. This is a holy fear, a reverent fear, a healthy fear, a good fear, a motivating fear, a sanctifying fear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling before a holy God. That's what they're saying. Jesus unveiled. The holy sovereign God, man of the universe is in our presence. And look what he just did. You know what probably happened was in light of the majesty of God being unveiled through that miracle and they realized Almighty Jehovah God is in our presence in a physical body and probably all their sin just got exposed in their own mind. That's where the fear came from. Fear of a holy God. So they were fearful. They were amazed saying to one another, this is what drove their fear. That's what the question is about. Who then is this? I thought I knew Jesus. I thought I knew the Messiah. I don't. That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Life-changing. Life-changing. And Jesus continues to change lives. If you don't know Jesus Christ today personally, he is real. 
He is sovereign. He reigns over the earth. He rules through his spirit and his word. He's still seeking sinners that they might be saved today. He's calling out his truth is pressing upon your conscience. Every human being was made in the image of God. Whether you believe in God or not, you were made in his image. And you have a frequency by which he can communicate with you constantly. And he is. He's wooing you and calling you to repentance. He's, he's reminding you that Jesus is Lord. You can't do it on your own. You need to cry out to the creator, and you need to specifically cry out to the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not just Lord over nature. He's Lord of the universe. He's Lord of every soul. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you continue to just push him away, there's a day of accounting coming. That's clear from Scripture. Jesus said that. Everyone will bow the knee. Everyone. It's better to bow the knee in this lifetime and affirm him as personal Savior than bowing the knee after you die, recognizing him as your judge and your judge alone. Being punished for all eternity for your unforgiven sin. He's a gracious Merciful, patient, wooing Savior. He's calling you. Today is the day of salvation. Cry out to him. Admit you're a sinner and you need him. He will answer that prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and just this wonderful account that you have so graciously preserved for the church, for your people, really for the world, anyone who hears it. A reminder who, who Jesus really is. He's the God-man. He's the Lord over nature. He is the sovereign one. We look forward to the day when he will come and take over earth and remove the curse. And those of us who know and believe in him will reign with him in glory. God, help us to continue to meditate on that true thought so that it can drown out fears that are needless, that undermine our faith from day to day. And we thank you that you are in complete control. We thank you for your love for us as a gracious, heavenly Father. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.